I love that song. Even this morning over when we were here for breakfast, had a wonderful opportunity just to share in fellowship with, with a couple of the men here, specifically even just on God's faithfulness and how immense God's love is. So I thought it was just appropriate and funny how the Lord sovereignly just had weaved together that song that we got to sing this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 11. Acts 11 is where we're going to be this morning. One Sunday this past winter at our church, just up at Chisago, then we had the opportunity to host one of our supported missionaries uh, that they were back on furlough, and we had a chance to host them in our church. And that was the first time that Natalie and I had been able to meet them since we had moved to Minnesota. Uh, So we had heard wonderful things about them, uh, but it wasn't until that moment that we actually got to meet them. And I don't know if you guys have experienced this when perhaps you hear names of the missionaries that your church supports, and you hear maybe stories about them, and you read their newsletters and their updates, and you pray for them, but if you hadn't had a chance to meet them in person yet, then it's kind of just a lot of information, right? But then then that missionary comes on a furlough and visits your church, and you kind of put now a face and a personality to everything that you've heard and you've read, and that was one of the things that Natalie and I had the joy of doing uh, with this missionary couple. So, uh, Bernard and Bernice are their names. And Bernard, they're missionaries to France. Bernard is a Frenchman and Bernice is American. And it was so fun getting to know them, especially Bernard, because as you would think, he has very much of a French sense of humor, if you will. And by that, I mean opportunities to get to know Bernard when we were sitting around a table having lunch together after the morning service, then somebody would crack a joke. And everybody at the table is in stitches and then you look at Bernard, and he's just kind of got that, that European deadpan face of not funny. But then later in the conversation, Bernard, Bernard cracks a joke, and he himself is in stitches. And we're all sitting here n- laughing, not because what Bernard said was funny, but because Bernard is just one of those people that has that very contagious laugh. You all know people like that, I'm sure, where you laugh not because of what the person said, but because the person just has that contagious, joyous laugh. Those were just one of the aspects that we really appreciated of getting to know Bernard and Bernice, among other things. And one of, the, one of the things that actually really impressed us as we heard his presentation was God's faithfulness and how much they gave credit to that. Bernard and Bernice actually just retired off of the field after 50 years of ministry in France. And one of the incredible things that we noticed about their presentation was how many times they said, or specifically Bernard said, God's work in France. And by that, I mean, instead of saying our ministry, he would always say God's ministry. Or he would say the work that God is doing that we're a part of, or what God has stewarded to us to be a part of. Every single time in that presentation, never once did he say my ministry or our ministry, but he completely gave credit to God for the work that he was doing. That impressed us. And, and Bernard and Bernice had been through quite the ringer over 50 years, I'm sure, as you can imagine, seeing the highs and the lows and the ups and downs of ministry in Western Europe. One of the things that stood out to me about the fact that he gave God all of the credit about the ministry was how that tied back really to what we see in Scripture, that God's hand is the one that works the building of his church. And so our big idea this morning is that God desires that his church follows his global plan for the nations. God desires that his church follows his global plans for the nations. 
Now, before we read our text, let me just give a little bit of background because we're going to be picking up right in the middle of chapter 11. And just like any good book, you never want to pick up right in the middle of the story. So some background, some context to where we have been in the book of Acts to this point is if you remember, the gospel has now been, if you will, unlocked for the Gentiles. We've just finished going through the Cornelius saga where a Gentile has now received the Holy Spirit, he and his family. And the church in Jerusalem is amazed at this. They're amazed that Gentiles have now been given salvation to the point where in verse 18 of chapter 11, then the church says, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This was earth-shattering news. And what happened with Cornelius and what is happening in Jerusalem is just the spark that is about to set a flame across the known world of the gospel spread. So with that in mind, look with me at our text. Chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 19 to the end of the chapter in verse 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So what we want to really hone in on this morning is this is what we see happening in Antioch. We see the birth of this church in Antioch, and if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you've probably heard that, oh, the church in Antioch. But what we want to see and what we want to study specifically about this church is the start of this church, the instruction to this church, and then the laborers that were sent out from this church. So let's begin by zooming out a little bit and see what is happening in Jerusalem at large. So we see the start of this missional church. How does the gospel get to Antioch? Now, at the beginning of our text, you'll notice that what was happening is that persecution over, remember, if you remember Stephen back in Acts 7, Stephen was martyred, and persecution of Christians is now on the rise. Because of this, you have people that are fleeing Jerusalem for their lives And they are going to places such as is given to us, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. If you are anything like me, maps are super, super helpful in visualizing what and where the book of Acts is talking about. So you see at the bottom there, the city of Jerusalem. Christians are running to Phoenicia, to Cyprus, and up to Antioch, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And so these people are running for their lives And they end up going to these three sections that we see here in the book. Now, let's learn a little bit about Antioch of Syria. Not to be confused with Antioch of Pisidia that we also see in Scripture, but Antioch of Syria. 
It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at this time behind Rome and Alexandria. And so the, the metropolis would have been about 500,000 people. And so with 500,000 people, you have people from all over the Roman Empire that would come to Antioch. With them would bring their culture, their lifestyle, their religion, and many times linked with religion, their sexual immorality. So, for example, one Roman satirist of the time period claimed that all of the immorality and corruption that, would, that was from Antioch would actually flow down the river into the capital city of Rome. Antioch had a reputation of sorts of being a, a pagan and a sexually immoral city. So it's interesting that Christians think this is the place that we go to find refuge from the persecution that we're experiencing. And so they end up in Antioch. Now, the God, now we see that the believers are coming, coming into Antioch, and look at verse 21. Oh, sorry, verse 20. But there were some of them from Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. They come into Antioch and they preach the gospel. What's interesting is this is actually one of the first times that we see the idea of evangelism being done by the layperson. Up to this point, we've seen evangelism happen from the apostles and the church leaders spreading the gospel. But now we see this from your average believer who's on the run for their life, and they are spreading the gospel. They are sharing the gospel to Hellenists, or to Jew, not only just to the Jews, but to the Hellenists, likely a broader scope of Gentiles, not just Jews anymore. So they come to the city of Antioch, and they're spreading the gospel, and it's mostly a Gentile city. And they are spreading this to the Gentiles. And so the gospel spreading because of persecution and what happens, now look at verse 21, what happens when they spread that in Antioch, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So the people here in Antioch, largely Gentiles, accept the gospel. The gospel is now spreading bigger than just what we see happening in Jerusalem, just what we see happening to the Jews. And what's interesting, did you notice the phraseology of how the author Luke wrote that? And the hand of the Lord was with them. It was not, and these men had a charismatic personality and were really persuasive. No. The hand of the Lord was with them. And what a wonderful reminder that is. Because when you look at it, in a great number who believed turned to the Lord. That was God's work. That is not the men because of their charismatic personality or persuasiveness. It is not the missionary who builds a church or a pastor or an evangelist. It is God who builds his church. And that is actually something that we, reading this in 2023, can actually take great comfort in. Because God is the one who promised that I will build my church. So, when you've been in a gospel conversation and you feel like you mess up the gospel... I didn't say that clearly. That wasn't right. That came out not the way that I wanted to. Thank God that it is his promise that will build his church and it is not based on us. We take great comfort in that. A great number, verse 21, many of whom are Gentiles. 
this is one of the first times, if not the first time, that we see this happening in mass, if you will. So if you remember, we have the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8, single scenario. We have Cornelius and his family, single scenario. Now we have the gospel to Gentiles at large. This is a pivotal point in the book of Acts and the building of Christ's church. God was flinging open the doors to the gospel for all tribes, tongues, and nations to accept. And so what happens when you have a large group of believers? Naturally, what is going to happen? There is a church. This morning, what we are doing this morning as a group of believers is congregating and assembling together. In Antioch, there is a group of believers that come together and a church is born. Now, it is a young church, an immature church, but a church of Gentiles is born. And so from this church, the birth of this church, what do we see then happen? We see the instruction to the missional church. The instruction to the missional church. Look with me at verse 22. The report of this, of everything that had just happened in Antioch, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, people down at the church in Jerusalem, where some people are running from persecution, they catch wind of what's happening in Antioch. They hear that, and they're curious. So what do they do? They send somebody down, or send somebody up, sorry. They send somebody up, to see what is it that God's hand is doing in Antioch. Let's send Barnabas. And so we see Barnabas going out as a solo laborer. He's sent from Jerusalem. They pick him and they say, go see what God's hand is doing up there. Now we're not given why the church in Jerusalem felt like they needed to send somebody to see it. I tend to think perhaps that's because maybe since the church and the gospel all started in Jerusalem... Perhaps maybe they felt some responsibility for this. Well, something's happening in the same thing that's happening here, now in Antioch. Let's go see for ourselves. We're not given why that, really, that, why that reason is, but I tend to think maybe they, they felt some responsibility there. And so they send Barnabas, they send from themselves somebody to go look at what is happening. Now, this is not the first time that we've seen Barnabas in the book of Acts If you remember some of the things that we've heard about Barnabas, he's the son of encouragement. He's a very generous and giving person. If you remember in chapter 4, he's actually, if you will, the antithesis to uh, Ananias and Sapphira, people who sold property, lied to the Holy Spirit, died. He's actually the antithesis. He sold property and gave it to the church. He's like the good example of that story right at the end of chapter 4. Barnabas has already built up a reputation for himself that he's trustworthy, that he's good. I mean, verse 24 gives us a little bit of that says he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So when the church is looking and trying to figure out what do we do with what is happening in Antioch, let's send Barnabas. Let's send somebody from our church that already has proven himself to have a good reputation that is involved, and they send Barnabas. And what does he do? He encourages them. He encourages them, verse 23, and when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He gets to Antioch, and he sees what God has done, and he's so encouraged, and he says, keep going. Let me encourage you to remain in the grace of God and to remain in the faith. 
it is it any wonder that Barnabas was known as the son of encouragement? And the church in Jerusalem recognizes this and say, we want you to go see for ourselves. And he gets there and he sees what God has done. Bringing Gentiles to faith in Christ. Something not seen before. And in verse 24, after our description, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people are added to the Lord. This happens again. Barnabas gets there and he sees what's happening. He's encouraging. And what happens? More people come to Christ. More people are getting saved. And they were added to the Lord. So, good news. The church is growing. This church, full of Gentiles, is growing. And people are continuing to get saved. Praise God. Bad news is that Barnabas needs help. Barnabas almost needs to do a little bit of crowd control because this is growing. And so what does he do? He goes to find a team. He brings a team with him and he thinks to himself, I need Saul. Look with me at verse 25 in the first part of 26. So Barnabas went to Tarshish to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Now, I think that this was probably something very strategic of Barnabas to do was getting Saul. If you have studied through the book of Acts before, you'll remember that we actually haven't seen Saul in several years. The last time we saw Saul, he was actually running from persecution for his life recently after his conversion. He was preaching the gospel. And so those in Jerusalem basically hid him, helped him escape, and he went to Tarsus. And that was two to three years prior to this. And so in one sense, I think that this was strategic for Barnabas to go get Saul because this would have even further validated God's call on Saul. If you remember when Saul came to Christ and some of the Christians were like, oh, we can't trust that, because he was a persecutor. I think this would have even further validated that Barnabas says, I need Saul for this work. Again, that's not given to us. I tend to think that that's a very strategic move, though, that Barnabas does. And so Barnabas goes to Tarshish. He goes from Antioch to Tarshish to look for Saul, Again, probably not having seen him in a couple years. And it's there that he finds him and recruits him to come back. Recruits him to come back to Antioch because look at what God is doing. Saul, look at what God is doing and has done in Antioch and it's growing and I need help. I need somebody who's going to come along with me and help this church. And so Barnabas brings him to Antioch, and look at the second half of verse 26, for a whole year, what did they do? For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Barnabas brings Saul, probably not having to do much coercion, brings him to Antioch, and they spend a year teaching, training, discipling. This new church full of new believers. Teaching is an essential part of ministry. Teaching and training believers is an essential part of ministry. How else do you expect somebody who comes to Christ to go from a baby, baby Christian, baby in the church, to a pillar of the faith, we're there serving in every ministry? How do you expect that to happen? Those things do not happen overnight. And many of you who have seen new believers, or you can recount to when you were a new believer, 
know that that does not happen overnight, and they spend a year teaching. And so we see these, Saul and Barnabas, almost being like these missionaries, training, discipling, helping them come to maturity in Christ. Think of maybe somebody that you've had the opportunity to lead to the Lord, and you've seen them take that step in faith. Hopefully, nobody here has led somebody to the Lord and then say, I am so happy for you. Welcome to the family of God. All right, see you later. And you walk off. No, like when we hear that, we're like cringe. We're like, no, stop, don't do that. What do we do? We bring them into the church. We train and we disciple. We tell them this is what God's word says. This is how to live it out. This is how you would help somebody live this out. Teaching and training and discipling is so necessary of believers, and that is exactly what we see Saul and Barnabas doing. For a year, they are doing this. They taught a great many people. It's interesting to note at the very end of verse 26, when it says in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Most likely, this term was not a good thing. Most likely, this was actually an easy way for the people of Antioch to lump this new sect of people together. Oh, you, you follow the teachings of that Christ, you, you Christian. It was, it was probably actually more of a derogatory term just to be able to kind of organize this, what is this group of people? Because it's not just Jews, it's not just Gentiles, it's not based on ethnicity, so what do they do? Well, you guys follow that Christ, you Christian. And yet, and yet, that is such a wonderful title, that somebody would recognize their close association with Christ that they would be called and known and identified by a close association with Christ. So often in our American culture today, it almost seems like you can slap the title Christian on anything. And people are like, oh, that's great! You're a Christian! We can see it on ministries, on maybe even churches, people at work, and they say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. It's like, man, I would never know that. Would people say that about you? That they, Would they know that you're a Christian? Not because you say it, but because they can tell that you are closely associated with Christ. Do we wear that title proudly? That we truly would be somebody who is associated with Christ. Would we wear that proudly? And so we've seen the start of this missional church. We've seen how it has been instructed, the instruction to the missional church. And then we see... How this missional church comes full circle and the laborers from the missional church. The laborers from the missional church. This is where, again, in our growth process, this is where a church goes from baby church, baby immaturity, to a church showing steps of maturity in Christ and growth and following, not just in numbers, because growth is so much more than numbers. Growth is maturity in Christ. And look at what they do. They meet a need. They meet a need. Verses 27 and 28. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So we see a problem. There's a famine coming. And of course, when we read through scripture, we see famines happen 
And maybe in our context, it's a little bit hard for us to really connect to that because we realistically just don't see famines like that here in North America. But this would have been something significantly devastating. We actually can point to history to see that this was a very, very devastating famine. There were about five famines that happened during the reign of Claudius from AD 41 to AD 54. And during his reign, this was likely likely the most significant, the worst of the famines that happened in AD 47. And so this famine is happening. It's being foretold by the prophet Agabus. Because remember, God uses God used the sign gifts and spiritual gifts to establish his church at the beginning. Not normative for today, not around for today, but he used this prophet to foretell of a famine that would be coming. And what does this church, this this baby church, baby church, a lot of people, been trained for a year. What do they do? Look at what they do, verse 29. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, setting it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So what's the solution? So they, they, there's a problem, there's a crisis, they meet a need. There's a solution. Sending relief to the brothers down in Jerusalem. If you remember, if you remember in our little map, 300 miles or so south in Jerusalem. This church in Antioch says, we can help. We can do something about this. Now, if you remember, in Acts 2, at the birth of the church, the first church in Jerusalem, what was it that the church was doing? They were selling their property. They were giving to the needs of each other. They were taking care of each other. They were marked by true compassion and love and care for the body of Christ. And now we see a church, not connected to that at all, doing the same thing. Having compassion, seeing a problem, and meeting a need. Because generosity and love for one another, as believers, is continued to be demonstrated among genuine and authentic believers. Whether that's in Jerusalem or in Antioch, and hopefully we see that today. Believers genuinely care for one another. It's who we are. We have seen this happen, maybe even more significantly in the past year and a half or so. We see things like this all the time. For example, last February, when Natalie and I went to the Netherlands for our trip that we took together, the day that we landed in the Netherlands was the day that Russia began their full frontal attack on Ukraine. What a day to be in Europe. And so we arrive on a weekend, and we go to church on Sunday, and this is like a day or two right after that. And everybody at church is sitting here like, what do we do? What's going to happen? What is this going to look like? Is this going to be World War III in Europe? And we're kind of sitting there asking the same thing. We're like, eh, maybe we should go home. But so that's happening the first weekend that we're there. Then fast forward seven days, maybe eight days. The next Sunday that we were there at the church in the Netherlands, In just one week, this church had organized a wonderful and quite intricate relief aid for believers in Ukraine. So a lady in the church whose brother was a pastor in Slovakia right on the Ukrainian border had basically organized among churches in Europe to be able to collect resources and needs and get them to Slovakia to help Ukrainians as they were coming out. In one week that we were there, we saw a church go from what do we do, what do we do, to mobilizing and to seeing a church meet the needs and cares of believers in Ukraine. That was an incredible thing to see happening in Europe. 
And that wasn't just in Europe. We can talk and know of ministries and people here in the States that really rallied around Ukraine when everything first went down. Because a mark of a genuine believer is a care and concern for one another. And so the church, this church in Antioch, sends out from among themselves Saul and Barnabas. There is a problem. There is a need. They can meet the need, and they say, let us send from ourselves Barnabas and Saul. They sent them to go back to Jerusalem to do work. Have you ever wondered why we see patterns from Scripture of churches sending missionaries? It is not a mission board that sends a missionary. It is not a missionary that wakes up one morning and says, I'm going to go move to this country, and I'm going to send myself. It is churches that send missionaries, and we see a pattern happening in Scripture. A growing, this growing church in Antioch, this growing of people and growing in maturity, after having been trained and taught for a year, say, we're going to send you to go do this work in Jerusalem, to go meet this need. And then, you can listen or you can jump ahead to the very end of chapter 12, what do they do? And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. The church sends them and says, go, help, we're sending you from our church. And then they come back. This is what we today called furlough, when missionaries come back. And then what's cool is that they don't just stay in Antioch. Then if you read through like chapter 13, at the beginning of 13, the process repeats and they send them out. And that is what we know as Paul's first missionary journey. There is a cycle here that is repeating that Antioch is sending out gospel workers. Sending them out, doing the gospel work, planting in churches, coming home, reporting, and repeating the process. Does that sound familiar to what we do? We pull our philosophy of missions because that is what we see happening in Scripture. God was the one setting apart these people and the church was sending them. We see the model of sending missionaries to go do the work of God. And why is that? Because if you remember our big point, God has a plan for the nations. God has a plan for the nations. You know what I love is even in this congregation, we see multiple nations represented. That is exactly how it should be. Because God has a plan that the nations would know him would bring him glory, as we mentioned in our presentation this morning. And so we see this church in Antioch of of primarily Gentiles, maybe some Jews in there, growing in maturity to send out their own laborers to take place in what God was doing for the nations. So let me bring this full circle. Let me bring this full circle. What part are you playing in God's plan for the nations? What part are you playing for God's plan for the nations? As we trace through Acts, and if you were to sit and study through the whole book of Acts, you would see a wonderful narrative of God continuing to build his church. This this is just the start of what God would do across the world and is doing today because thank God that his promises never fail and he is still building his church because God is a God who keeps his promises. He built this church through the start, 
through the instruction and then through the labors of this missional church, it was not a one-and-done event. It is a cycle that has repeated that we see today of people, churches, sending out labors to go do the work. His church is still being built, and so I ask, what is your role? Please note that the question is not if you have a role. The question is, what is your role? Because we all have a part to play in what God is doing around the world. Let me give you some examples of what that might look like, because you're sitting here and like, I'm not going to the foreign mission field. Cool, let's talk. Have you shared Jesus with others? What would that look like for you to faithfully be sharing Jesus with the people that God has already put in your sphere of influence? Work, neighbors, family. Those are like the first ones we think of. Maybe you have other cool opportunities that don't fit in those three categories, but who is it that God has put in your sphere of influence that need to hear about Jesus? That is a wonderful place to start with what God is doing around the world right here in Minnesota. Number two, what about praying regularly for your missionaries? I mentioned this this morning in our presentation, that prayer is, I save that for the, one of the ways that you can partner with us, because missionaries need prayer. And oftentimes we can kind of think that that's the, okay, well, yeah, I can pray, but what else can I do? Prayer is essential. If we don't believe that God is actually going to work through the ministry of prayer, why pray? Why talk to God? Every church... What I've loved is, as we've traveled to different churches, what I've loved is we start learning that every church has those people that we classify kind of as a prayer warrior. And if I were to ask who are maybe some of your prayer warriors in your church, you could probably think of one or two where you just know, like, they're on their knees every day, long time. They're bringing before the needs, before God. They are prayer warriors. That is a wonderful ministry to have. Number three is communicating with missionaries. We live in a day and age where communicating with missionaries is the easiest it has ever been, and it will only get easier. Texting, video calls, emails. At one time, communicating with your missionaries was writing a handwritten letter. Now, pull out your phone and send a text. When you communicate with your missionaries, you can encourage them. You can encourage them and say, hey, we are praying for you. What are more ways that we can pray for you? You give them a tangible way of saying, we as your support network back home care. And we are communicating with you because you are valuable to us. The work that you are doing for the Lord is valuable. Maybe another way to tangibly encourage them is to send a gift. Again, something that maybe at one point was challenging is relatively simple now. Maybe that's a money gift. Maybe that's something just through your bank system. Maybe that is you actually, you know, your family puts together a little care package to send to their country. International shipping is pricey. Okay, we know that. But how exciting it is for a missionary family to open up a box and see a box of Oreos and Twizzlers and other things that they miss from the States. Little things to encourage them. And you might think, how is that encouraging them at all? But when a missionary maybe misses things from home, and maybe really just feels a little disconnected, how encouraging would that be to be like, oh, somebody cares enough to know what me, my kids like, and they're going to send that to us. 
ways that you can build up your missionary, because when you build up your missionary, you build up the ministry that they are doing, and you build up the cause of Christ in that country or region or area. One of the biggest encouragements, I'm told, because we're not on the field yet, one of the biggest encouragements is going to visit your missionary. What would that, I actually love, Pastor Graham, what you said this morning uh, in, about family camp. Taking a week vacation and going to family camp. Oh, can I really sacrifice a week vacation? What would that look like for you to sacrifice a week of vacation to go visit your missionary? I guarantee when you come home, you will not say that that was a sacrifice. You will be blessed when you see, here are the resources we're giving to this ministry in this part of the world, and here I got to see firsthand what God is doing there. That is not a sacrifice. You have an amazing ministry. Not the pastor, I mean the pastor, the deacon, the lay person, the person who shows up on Sundays and serves has an amazing ministry to sit and to pray and to listen with your missionary serving somewhere else in the world. What would that look like to take a week of vacation to go encourage them in person? And what's great is when you come home, you're that much more invested in that ministry and you get to share with your church people. Here's what I saw God doing in Timbuktu. Here's what our resources are doing and look what God is doing. And then lastly, probably the most scary one, is have you considered going to the field for yourself? Many times we think that this is the high school student, the college student, the young adult. But let me encourage you, if you have never once considered, could God use me on the mission field? Consider that today, regardless of age. We were at one missions conference where one of the couples going to the field were in their 50s. They said, hey, we're empty nesters. We probably have another 15 years or so before we retire. Let's go to the mission field. You don't see that very often. And yet, what an amazing way that was that they said, this is how we can use our pre-retirement years when we have the flexibility to go serve the Lord overseas. How could God use you on the mission field? And so these are just six, not an exhaustive list, but six ways that you can play a part in what God is doing around the world because God desires that his church follows his global plan for the nations. As an individual believer, what are you doing? As a church, what are you doing? What does that look like? Let it be our prayer that we look at Acts 11 and we look at Antioch and say, would that be an example of us? Would we look at that and would we model the Acts 11 Antioch church? Let me go ahead and pray. God, we're so thankful for what you have given the model that we see not only just in chapter 11, but through the book of Acts. And we see that flesh out throughout your word. God, we are grateful that you are a God who keeps your promises, that you are building your church. Lord, not because we are anything special, but because you are powerful and you are great. I pray for each believer here this morning that you'd give us opportunities to encourage missionaries, to encourage missions, and to share the gospel with those that you have placed in our sphere. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here this, this morning that does not have a relationship with you, that they would look at this and they would see that something is missing in their life. I pray that your spirit would do a work this morning in those hearts. We're grateful for your word that you give to us in our language that we can understand and that we can know you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.